All right, if you are a guest with us or maybe just back for the first time in a long time, we are actually in part seven of a series of messages called Outlanders. Short version of how we got here, we've been reading a letter a guy named Peter wrote, and he wrote it specifically to some followers of Jesus who were living outside of Jerusalem, and they were sojourners, they were aliens, they were foreigners, or my favorite, they were Outlanders, hence the title of the series. So in a rather real way, they are a lot like us. If you're a follower of Christ, your passport might say USA, but your birth certificate says child of God. You are a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home. So no, you should not look like the world around you. You are salt. You are light. You are different. And what we need to do is what Peter was instructing the readers of his letter to do, and that is how can we learn how we can live a life of faith in what is otherwise uh, unfaithful world. And so if you brought a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab it. You got a device, find a uh, click to First Peter 4. Pro tip on the Bible thing, open it up to the very back. That's going to be Revelation. There's like some fire and blood and dragons and stuff in there. Maybe skip that part if you're new to the whole Bible thing. It'll get really confusing. Uh, next is Jude, and then there's some letters by John, 3rd, 2nd, 1st. Then you got 2nd Peter, and then finally you'll be in 1st Peter. You need the big number 4. And we're going to pick it up right there in the beginning where it says... Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and that terrible worship of idols. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God, thank you for your word. We're just asking you now to do what only you can do and speak to our hearts. Uh, give clarity to the message of this letter. Help us learn what it is you're asking us to learn. Help us take steps closer to you. I ask that you just help every person leave here today changed with hope and uh, in, a, in a more dynamic relationship with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever heard the phrase or maybe have been told you've changed as if it's some kind of negative thing that you've changed. Uh, it's a rather common phrase within the American vernacular and, and probably right for, rightfully so because maybe you have changed. Maybe you got you know a wild haircut back in the day and you got some bangs before bangs were in and uh, you were kind of like people are, what are you doing? Or maybe you got the man bun. Uh, that's never been in by the way. So if you got that, that's just okay for you, but whatever. Uh, maybe you got a perm and, you know, I remember going to the salon as a kid with my mom and having to smell the perms they were cooking up under the, uh, the little salad bowl things. You all know what I'm talking about? They still have those. And the ladies were reading the magazine or the crossword and that's something your nostrils will never forget, the, the old perm thing. And 
uh, maybe if you've never had a perm before, when you get back from the perm a nation or whatever they call that, uh, people are like, you've changed. And you're like, yes, yes, I have. I got the perm. Uh, maybe it wasn't a haircut at all. Maybe the fact that you've changed is because uh, you were out of school for the summer and you just turned 18. So you're like, I'm going to get the tattoos and the piercings. And uh, maybe you went goth or grunge. And so your clothes changed, your makeup changed. And even if you're a dude, you painted your fingernails on just that one hand. Remember the black? Because that's what everybody was doing. And so when people, you came back from school, everybody, He's like, yeah, you've changed, and you had, in fact, changed. Uh, more recently, maybe you went to your high school reunion, and you added some pounds. Maybe you took off a few pounds. You're feeling pretty good about yourself or pretty bad about yourself, depending how that worked out for you. And uh, perhaps they made fun of you when you were in school, and that motivated you to get a good job. And then you made a bunch of money, and now you drive a really cool car, and you're dating a model, and you own houses everywhere. And so you just wanted to put that back onto some people that were making fun of you. Um, but then God radically got a hold of your soul, and then he came into your life, and you're like, I don't want that life anymore, and it's about, I don't need to be about money or things, you know, I need to be about the Jesus, and so people knew you one way in high school, but then they knew you a different way in your adult life, and now they know you an even third way, like in your 30s, and that's kind of the story of my life, punk kid, you know, just a, kind of a big tool, but then married a trophy wife, you know, hey girl. And so, uh, and then God radically uh, transformed my soul, and now I'm a preacher, and I meet people from years ago that they're like, you do what? You do what again? Like, this does not add up at all in my mind. And it really, in fairness, it doesn't add up if it wasn't for God. And there's a point uh, that's why Peter says there's a point in life when you arm yourself with the same attitude of Christ, and there's a point when you're done with sin, and the result of that is you start living for the will of God. But then everybody who had encountered you before that moment, they're going to be surprised by the metamorphosis, and not everybody's going to be happy about it because misery loves company, and they're going to say, you've changed. With disdain and contempt, they're like, who are you now? And that's kind of what Peter is after. Here's my sermon in a sentence. You might want to jot this down if you're taking notes. The past is where you learn the lesson. Future is where you apply the lesson. Uh, there's, a, there's a past lesson that you have to learn, and we all end up doing that. We're going to spend the bulk of our time talking a little bit about that. And then we need to figure out how we can apply the lesson, because healthy things grow. And we need to come to grips with the fact that uh, there are some lessons that God might be trying to teach you, and if you don't apply them, they're going to turn out very bad for you. Peter starts out this section of his letter by saying, when you arm yourself with the same attitude of Christ, which side point, don't know how much you've picked up on this, but Peter likes to use a lot of military terms in his writing. He says, arm yourselves right here. And if you can remember back to chapter 1, verse 13, he wrote, uh, prepare your minds for action. That's actually almost the exact same phrase in the Greek. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he writes, your earthly passions are waging war against your soul find this battle terminology somewhat ironic because Peter was just the worst at fighting. Wasn't he? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when the temple guard came to arrest Jesus? And what's Peter do? Yanks out his sword and tries to chop off a dude's head? 
And instead he gets his ear? Like, how do you mess that up? I mean, you could tell he's a fisherman because like, you know, there's a little bit of swinging here that Peter, you need to figure out. And Jesus like picks up the dude's ear off the ground and is like, dude, what are you doing? And he like slaps it back on the guy's head and it's all healed. They still arrest him, by the way, like after you saw that. Like, uh, yeah, my cousin did the same thing. Well, we can heal ears all the time. It's just is what it is. But he, Jesus tells Peter, dude, calm down. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And that was just Jesus' nice way of saying, this ain't going to work out for you, Peter. You know, stick to the fishing thing. Zorro is not in your future. You can't even cut off a guy's head. Nonetheless, the point is well taken. You're in a battle. The sooner you realize that, the better. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Most of the battles that you face in this life are going to be battles of your mind. Your mind is going to tell you, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. And your soul's going to sound the alarm. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, Yes, it is. This is dangerous. You shouldn't go down that path. And it's up to you to win the battle in your brain. That's what Peter's point is. Arm yourself with the same attitude of Christ. You've got to make the choice to arm yourself. I like how Paul writes about this when he writes uh, similar things in 2 Corinthians 10.3. He says, we're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments that's happening in your brain. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. This is like our church's life verse. We're going to destroy the obstacles that are in people's way because we want all of you to know God. We're going to capture rebellious thoughts. We're going to win the battle in our brain. We're going to teach them to obey Christ. Surely you have figured out by now that wherever you go, there you are, and therefore you are your own worst enemy. Every person has an unlimited capacity for self-deception. That's why the Bible says your heart is deceptive among above everything that is trying to convince you of the, that's why you got to win this battle. That's why the authors of your Bible repeatedly use this military language. Because your mind frequently contradicts your spirit. So your mind says, well, I should probably move in with this person because we're in love and we're married in our hearts. I'm going to go ahead and just sleep with them because we need to figure out if we're compatible. Um, Except the Journal of Family Psychology, not a Christian publication, found that, I quote, premarital cohabitation is viewed as a risk factor for divorce as it predicts later marital instability, poorer marital quality, and less relationship satisfaction. Compared to married couples, cohabitating couples argue more, have more trouble resolving conflicts, are more insecure about one another's feelings, are less happy within the sexual portion of the relationship and have more problems related to their future goals. Of course they do, because how can you not, you know, if they're not going to uh, put a ring on it, why would, they, why would you trust them with anything? Yet even after hearing all of that factual information, people will say, well, that's not true for us. We're in love. And so God's going to let you learn your lesson the hard way. 
I think one of the scariest things about all of Scripture, read Luke chapter 1, is the fact that God will allow you to chase after the things that you think you want and the things that you think are going to make you happy. And he'll say, go for it. I unfortunately meet a lot of people who settle for something less than the life Jesus paid for. You know, there's a lot of people who want God to change their eternity, but not their mentality. Because when God changes your eternity, He's asking you to change some of your thought process and win this battle in your brain, but those people don't want to do the hard work of winning that battle. The battle is waging war inside of their soul and in their brain. So even if they learn the lesson, likely the hard way, they still never want to apply the lesson later in life. As a result of that, at least in this country, the vast majority of people have fallen in love with immorality and lust and feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and the terrible worship of idols, to use Peter's words. Not much has changed in a few thousand years, has it? And to be fair, most of the people that I know probably don't struggle with some of the things on that list. Their biggest struggle is exchanging good created things in exchange for the creator of those things. Which is why, if there's any one thing that worries me more than anything else for each one of us, myself included, is that we'll fall in love with something good more than when than we'll fall in love with someone who's God. We'll love good things more than we love God. For example, I don't think most of you, when you leave here today, are going to be tempted with something incredibly wicked. Like, I don't think if you walked out of here and there's some dude in our back parking lot selling black tar, tar heroin, I don't think most of you are going to be like, you know what? Yeah, let's give that a try. Here's $20. Like, if that dude's out there, by the way, let us know there are police here. I mean, that should not be happening. Uh, but I, I can remember when Laura and I were in Mexico and we were at a resort and we walked out of the resort and there's like uh, fences on the beach. And we're like, this is kind of weird. But on the other side of the fence, it was because there's all these dudes out there trying to sell drugs. And they're like, hey, man, I got something for you over here. And I can remember thinking, this is not the best business proposition I've ever encountered. Like, no, I'm not coming over there. You freak me out. My, my point is, I don't think most of us are going to be tempted by something incredibly dark. You know what is tempting? To sleep in on a Sunday, especially when it's dark and raining. And I probably shouldn't go today. The weather's not quite right. And then when the weather is right, we're like, well, I should probably be outside and hiking and out at the lake. I got to wait for that perfect, you know, 158 degree weather to come to church because everything else just is not conducive. And now the typical American will go to church 1.8 Sundays per month. You know, it's tempting to let the kids play in the tournament next weekend. You know, it's tempting to just skim off the top when we're a little bit, you know, we got some more month than we got money. And we tell God, you know what? He'll understand. I'll just uh, take a little bit out of this portion. I'll make it up next month. The Bible says we're supposed to be living differently than the world around us, and now the average Christian gives 2% of their income per month, except statistics show non-Christians give 3% of their income to charitable donations. People who don't claim to be Christian are giving more money than people who are Christians. And we're supposed to be different than the world around us. We're on the wrong side of the different pendulum. See, I can appreciate Peter's list. 
but I also know we each have our own list, which is why I think the most important lesson for us to learn is how to win this battle in our mind. Peter's trying to remind you at some point, you've got to give up the good that's on your list for the God who wants to be in your life. He's got something better for you than all these good things you're trifling around with. Stop wasting time on the good and experience what's best. He continues on in verse 3, You've had enough of the past evil things that godless people enjoy, to which I wonder, have you actually had enough? Have you actually got to the point in your life where you're like, I don't need this anymore? Because look, the reason it's so hard for us to fight this battle in our souls is because we have an uncanny ability to never have enough. Jenny Lynn taught me that in The Greatest Showman. So there you go. It's never enough. And so we put different degrees on our dishonesties. Like, ah, oh, I didn't really like that bad. And we make excuses for our extracurriculars. Oh, God will understand. I'll make it up in the next. And Peter's imploring us that while this may be enjoyable, it's robbing us of eternal joy. It's robbing you of your best life. Consider what sin actually did to Jesus. Was Peter right? Very first sentence. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... How quick we are to forget that even though what it is in our lives that we struggle with, even though that isn't that big of a deal compared to our neighbor, Bill, you know, that guy's a liar. And even though what we did isn't that big of a deal, and technically we didn't get drunk, and technically it wasn't the whole truth, but it was just a little bit of a, you know, we extenuated the circumstances in our favor, and technically everybody else says it's fine, and how quick we are to forget that even though it wasn't that big of a sin, it still led to Jesus being killed on a cross. He still had to suffer and die because in the eyes of God, your sin was just as egregious as that liar Bill. I heard a guy once say that if you lie to your brother or your sister, not that big of a deal. Lie to your parents, they find out that's a little bit bigger of a deal. You lie to the cops, suddenly that might land you in jail. You lie to the government, that's considered treason. That's federal penitentiary stuff. Like you don't want to go there. And some you know, treasonous acts will get you the death penalty. And then we all lie to God like it's not that big of a deal, even though he stands above all of those created things. And we think, well, I, you know, God will have to forgive me. But you see how easy it is for us to convince ourselves that our sin is down here on that big of a deal, when in reality, all sin is a sin against God who stands way up here. I'm always a little bit confused by the cross as artwork and jewelry. I understand how it was created in, in that way and that the Christians back in the day were literally being nailed to crosses. It wasn't just Jesus who died on a cross. Our boy Peter died on a cross. And so this was kind of the uh, followers of Jesus. This was their way to stick it back to the government and say, we're not as scared of death. Like we'll hold the cross as, you know, uh, a, a way to say you can't, you can't scare me. And so I, I get all of that, but I, I've always kind of wondered what God thought about that. Uh, because if you had a child that was stabbed to death by some insane criminal, would you preserve that knife in a glass case on your mantle? 
No, I wouldn't want any reminders of that. And so I can't help but wonder if maybe in our glorification of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we've somehow become desensitized to the actual meaning that it was me that put him there. And it was my sin that was just as egregious as every other sin that ultimately led to Jesus having to be crucified at all. Can't help but wonder if what Peter is trying to get us to think about when he writes, you've had enough of the things of this world, can't help but wonder if he's trying to remind us that how can we enjoy that which made Jesus suffer and die? Why are you so in love with something that God calls unlovely? Because you're settling. You're not willing to engage in this battle in your brain. I want to help you figure that out. Now, to be fair, I already know why, even after we go through some of these things, I know why you're still going to struggle winning this battle in your brain. I know why it's hard for you to not give up sin. And quite frankly, it's because God in his mercy is withholding from us harsh punishment. So when we sin, there isn't an immediate and immense response. How many of you all know you got a lot more courage when there's no consequence to that? You have, have we not figured that out with uh, KU this week? And there was no consequences for some cheating back in the day. And now all of a sudden they're like, uh-oh, and this comes to light. My point is, let's all pray for KU. If we can take a, t- a moment this week at some point just to say sanctions go away in Jesus' name. <laughs> because nobody wants to see that happen and championships taken away. And I digress. God often uses guys like me to try and coax you back into this relationship with him and say, hey, where you're going, that's not where you want to go. That leads off of a cliff. And, and God in his grace and mercy doesn't punish you right away, which is in his full right to do, but because he doesn't and you don't enc- enc- encounter something drastic to get your attention, you just decide to go through with it. Jesus wrote about or spoke about this in his very first sermon that he preached in Matthew chapter 5. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck that mug out. And if your hand causes you to sin, you should chop that mug off. How many of y'all glad that you talked, you know, thought that was hyperbole? But what if Jesus was serious? That you should take your sins so serious that it causes you to never want to be able to do that again. So yes and amen to Jesus paid my price. But maybe we should consider that price a little bit more carefully the next time we're tempted with something good. But we hear in our soul, that's dangerous. Be careful. There's something better for you. Furthermore, I think one of those deliberate decisions that we need to give careful consideration to is about who we're going to give access to in our lives. Because according to Peter, depending on who's around you, they may or may not like it when you've changed. And when you've changed, uh, they may or may not like it when you've had enough of this world and they haven't, and they may or may not appreciate it, and they may or may not... Uh, want to encourage you in your endeavor to get closer to God. So step one is win the battle in your brain. Step two is you got to win the battle among your boys and your friends and the people who you've allowed to start speaking into your life. That's why I love that phrase, show me your friends, I'm going to show you your future. Because a lot of you got a, a dark future based on who you're hanging out with. 
I, I, I think you should think about it like this. Remember how I said, uh, when you see the cross, you should be reminded of your own sin that put Jesus on the cross? Well, when you're hanging out with people and you've changed your life, except they haven't changed, when they see you, they're going to see the cross. Because just like you, they're in this same battle within their brain and within their soul, and God is trying to stir up their lives, and most people don't want to fight that battle. We train ourselves from a very early age to travel the path of least resistance. And giving up all these things is hard. That's why Peter says you better be careful about who's around you because those people are likely to heap abuse on you when you're different. Perhaps you've experienced that. Home, at work, school. These people are like, I don't get why you've changed. Like, who are you to tell me what's right? And who are you to tell me? What, why, who gave you the authority on that? I'm living my truth. What's true for me? And they don't want to, to see and encounter what it is that you think. And I expect that you've noticed this in your own life. You've maybe even done it. Somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, I, I've seen this in you. I know where that leads. Maybe you should consider this. And you think, oh, you know, your first response isn't, you know what, you're right. I'm sorry. This isn't, you know, the life that I... That's not your first response. Your first response is, you know what, I've noticed a few things in you. Should I get out the checklist and go through some of the times that you were also a more... While we're talking about me, let's go ahead and talk about you. Now, Peter knows this. It's why he says for us to be alert and mindful and to hear the gospel when it's preached, verses 6 and 7. And then verse 8, he says, above all, above all that other stuff, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I want you to think about how Peter got to the point in his life where he was able to pen those words. Love covers a multitude of sins. What's Peter most known for within the time of the crucifixion? Denying Christ, right? Three times. A little girl walks up to him and says, hey, you were with this Jesus, the Nazarene. He's like, I was not. He curses her, curses his own name. Three times, curses God. Yet then Jesus rises from the dead. He uh, encounters the disciples once. One of the times, Peter's out fishing on a boat. Jesus is on the beach cooking up some walleye and a cast iron and calls the disciples in and has a private conversation with Peter. Says, Peter, do you love me? How many times does he ask him that? Three times. So, of course, love covers a multitude of sins for Peter because Peter has experienced this. Peter knows what this means on a firsthand account and so can you. The past is where you learn the lesson. Future is where you apply the lesson. So we need to figure out how we can apply this lesson so we can grow in our own lives. I got two things I want to help teach you uh, specifically from this text. You might want to draw this first one down. Love to the point of forgiveness. Love to the point of forgiveness. Love covers a multitude, a variety of, an immense number of sins. Peter learned this lesson, and Jesus wants to teach it to you too, because love is not about what I get. Love is about what I give. And again, according to Peter, the most important thing that you can give above all, love. 
because it covers a multitude of sins. Love to the point where you can forgive. I want to uh, help teach you that forgiveness happens repeatedly until the pain goes away and the desire for revenge goes away. Do you hear me? Forgiveness is not a one-step thing. Forgiveness is not denial. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I don't know why people say that. Forgive and forget. I've read through the Bible multiple times. You know what verse I've never come across? Forgive and forget. It's not in there. You don't forget. Because love is what's causing you to forgive. And how can you forget love? But uh, more importantly than that, please keep in mind that Jesus, our example of forgiveness has some pretty dramatic scars that remind him every day of what he had to go through in order to forgive you. Let that sink in. When Jesus shows up to the disciples and he says, it's, it's me, I, I've risen from the dead. Look, here are my hands, my, my feet, my wounds are gone. But there's some scars that have replaced those wounds to show you that I'm never going to forget this. Jesus says, I want you to know that I love you so much, it was worth every cruel, painful, excruciating, agonizing second. And I've got these scars as a reminder. And forgiveness is not overlooking an offense, it's covering the offense. I came to church this morning to set somebody free because I want you to know that you can forgive from a distance. You don't have to be right in that person, you know, that person that hurt you so bad. And whatever it is, you can still choose to forget them, forgive them. You're wondering, well, how do I know? Because I've been trying for years to forgive this person. Here's how you know if you've forgiven them. Your wounds have turned in to scars, just like Jesus. Like I've got this scar from knee surgery when I was in high school. And it's kind of a, a gnarly thing if, if you see it. It's not why I never wear shorts. I never wear shorts because my legs look really stupid. And there's skin, I look like broomsticks on a snowman. It's just really bad. Um, but if I would wear shorts, you'd see this kind of gnarly scar. And the, and the scar reminds me of the surgery. It reminds me of the pain that I was in before the surgery. It reminds me a little bit of the pain I was in after the surgery until that uh, wound healed up. And so I've got a reminder of it all. But when I look at the scar, I'm, I don't hurt anymore. And forgiveness is the same thing. It's not about forgetting. It's about not hurting anymore. It's about that situation that hurt you has become a scar. I'm so glad that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death and sin. But I'm even more glad that he had some scars to show me that he actually went through it all. And as a reminder that uh, there's a difference between being wounded and having some scars. Scars show me I learned a lesson, and I ain't going to make the same mistake twice because the past is where I learned the lesson, but the future is where I apply the lesson. And I just wish more people were open and honest about the scars they had in their life. That when we walk around like Jesus, and we can talk about our scars, and they're not wounds anymore, and we can forgive people. Is that helpful? Did I help anybody this morning? Two of you. One nod in your head, one said yes. All right, well, it helped me, so maybe that's all worth it. Don't let that person that hurt you so bad keep hurting you. That's really one I want you to hear me say. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about all the junk in their own life. So why are you going to allow them to keep hurting you? 
forgive repeatedly every day till those wounds become scars. Peter continues, verse 9, cheerfully, first word, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I love that Peter just amens himself. He's like, that's going to preach itself. I don't even need to say it. I'll just amen. Uh, yes and amen to all that. Praise be to the glory of Jesus and God. I, I love that. But here's how you can write it down. Cheerfully serve. Cheerfully serve. Cheerfully, very first word, Peter writes. What's he talking about? Service of others. So according to Peter, the way you can know if somebody is actually a Christian, because there's a lot of people that are going to tell you that they're a Christian, the way you can actually know if somebody is a Christian, are they cheerfully serving? How can you tell if God's grace has really made a difference in somebody's life? How do they serve others? Faithful stewards of God's grace use their gift to cheerfully serve. Now also notice the qualifier. The reason they're serving is not so they'll be noticed, but rather so that God will be praised. That's why you serve. Please also pay attention to the fact that when you're serving, God is the one who provides the strength. That is to say, Christian burnout is literally impossible. It's an oxymoron. It's like saying crash landing. Well, which did you do? You know, like jumbo shrimp. Why is it or is it not? Act natural. How do you how do you do? It? You either are or you are you acting or Christian burnout doesn't make sense because God is the one providing the strength and let's just say His strength can never run out. Now it doesn't mean you're never going to get to the point that you feel that way, and often that's just God's reminder as Are you doing this on your own strength? Or are you doing this in my strength? Then are you doing this for your own reasons or are you doing this so God will be praised? And do you have a place where you're getting refreshed because the Sabbath was created for man? Like, are you resting? For whatever reason, our country, country we just idolize busyness. You know, how are you? Busy. Busier than, you know, a gopher at a golf course. And they're like, what does that even mean? I don't know. But, um, and God's like, no, 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 no. Cheerfully serve, rest, circle, star, underline, highlight, whatever you do in your Bible, those three words, in all things. Cheerfully, in all things, we're going to serve. So how can you win this battle in your brain? How can you really grow and change? Do everything to the glory of God in all things. Ask yourself, is this bringing glory to God? And what I'm about to do is it going to bring glory to God? Because according to Peter, in all things, God needs to be glorified. And so let me do this as we close. The past is where you learn the lesson. The future is where you apply the lesson. We know that's true. But what else is true is your future is now. Like as you leave here today, your future begins. And with that in mind, I hope you'll come to understand that we as New Anthem Community Church, we are so passionate about this idea of God giving you a gift that you're supposed to cheerfully use to serve. We're so passionate about this that we've literally designed our entire church around the idea of helping you discover your gift and using your gift so that you can make a difference. Like I, my first goal for you is I want you to know God. 
Okay? So if you feel like Christians, you know, just want something from you, and churches are trying to, like, hide that, and we just need to get you in here so we can get... You need to know I do have an ulterior motive for you, and it's that you come to know God. And that when you get to know God, that you discover the purpose that He has given you and discover your destiny that He wants for your life. And in order for us to do that, we've developed this entire session called Next. Tanner talked a little bit about this morning. And that we want you to discover the essentials of the faith and like how this church even started and all of that. But then the culmination of that whole activity is you discovering your X factor. That God is giving you something different, an X factor in your life that he wants you to use to make a difference. And yeah, we're a church, so I'm going to tell you how you can use your, fact, your X factor within the uh, confines of a local church. But I also want you to know that you get to use your X factor at home and at school and in your marriage and at work. And God's given you this stuff for you to cheerfully make a difference in life. God's way is better than your way. And I want you to discover God's way, and I want to help line you up on all that. And I promise you, if you'll just give me a year of your life, tell people, just give me one year of your life. Do everything that I'm asking you to do, because I feel like that's what God's asking you to do. So get in a group, and go through next, and start giving away a portion of your income. And if you're freaked out by that, then don't even give it to this church. I don't care if you tie to this church, give it to somewhere else. But I think that's what God's asking you to do. And start serving. And if in one year you've done all of these things in a year, you still don't feel like God is transforming your life, I will leave this church with you. Okay? Because I'm so passionate around the idea of you getting involved and making a difference. And so if you're here and you hate this church, just one year you can become the pastor. You just do all this stuff and say, it didn't work. And now it's all yours. Okay? Good luck. Um, But God has something for you. And it's way better than anything you could think of yourself. You got to take some lessons that you've maybe learned the hard way. Start applying them. You love to the point of forgiveness. And you start cheerfully serving. And I promise you, God's going to do something powerful in your life. You believe it's true? God, thank you for your word thank you again just for the freedom that we have to come and gather in this place thank you for just the idea that you've gifted each person here today uniquely and god i'm i'm asking you again to do what only you can do and speak to each heart help them leave here different as i look out i i see different ways that you've each come in and I know portions of your story and I know many of you have been hurt God I'm just asking you to really give us the peace that you've promised us and I see death and I see cancer and I see betrayal and I see financial situations and God I'm just again asking you to make yourself known in a powerful way Help us love to the point of forgiveness. Help us learn how to cheerfully serve you in our lives. Help us learn how to give up some good things for the best things. And as we continue to pray, I, I just feel like, God, 
might be asking some of you to just surrender your life to him. You might have been coming to church your whole life and you've never actually believed any of this is true. God's speaking to you right now. The Bible says you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart. He's going to change your life. And I want to give you a chance to say, God, I believe in your son Jesus, in his death on a cross, but in his resurrection from the dead. God, make a difference in my life. Thank you for saving me. God, make a difference in each person today. Let them leave here forever knowing that you are God and you have a plan and a purpose for their life. And it's good. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.